This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Hello, everybody. This is Leadership in Action. I'm Mike Hussein. I'm the faculty director here of the Center for Leadership and Change and also the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program at the University of Pennsylvania. This is Sirius XM's business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Anne Greenhall, who is the deputy director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program. Jeff Klein, who works with us, is off today. And by the way, you are listening to us. Thank you for tuning in at our new time. We are live Friday mornings now, 9 a.m. Eastern. So tune in, channel 132, and you can follow us on Twitter and other places as well. We're SXM Business. So there it is, Anne. Uh, good yeah. to see you here in the studio. Great to be here at our new time and day. Uh, indeed. Um, and we are on the cusp of Veterans Day, which is on Monday, November mm-hmm. 11th. And before we bring on our guest who has served in, um, uh, in service as uh, for the United States, we'll be talking with him in just a minute. Let me just ask you, though, a more personal question to get us going today. I believe you had a relative or two who served the United States in uniform. Yes, uh, my father-in-law and my father, and it's my father Hmm. I think I'd like to just speak about, Robert Greenhall. And he was a veteran Hmm. of World War II and served as a combat artist, which was a unique and... uh, life-changing experience for him. Awesome. So, Anne, to take it from my side, I, um, I did not serve myself, but I had a brother who served in the U.S. Army and a father who served in the uh, U.S. Navy during World War II. He was in the South Pacific on some of those famous islands, so we, we honor their memory. We <laughs> honor right. them for what they have done. And with that, I'm going to bring on our guest now, who is the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of the Honor Foundation. Matt Stevens, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, Mike. Glad to be here. So, Matt, I'm just going to offer up a word or two about you, and then we're going to jump right in. Uh, You served in the U.S. Navy for 26 years as a SEAL. And then recently you joined uh, not only the board of what is called the Honor Foundation— but you are now chief executive of it. Uh, along the way, you were with, I think, Naval Special War- Warfare Group uh, Number 2. You worked uh, for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, and you've had a, a variety of other roles in uh, protecting uh, the country. So uh, it's our pleasure to have you again on the eve of Veterans Day. So, Matt, why don't we start with the Honor Foundation? My guess is some of our listeners know something about it, but probably many do not. So just help us understand what the Honor Foundation honors. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, The Honor Foundation is a nonprofit that supports uh, special operators transitioning from active duty military service to their next chapter in civilian life. It was formed to fill a critical gap in transition transition services for the most elite warriors in America under the premise that that they deserve better 
than what uh, the standard programs are and that uh, an exceptional transition program would be good for our country, the economy, and uh, and these individuals. And that they can continue to serve and do great things for the public and private sector. And Matt, just to clarify, you work with all of special operations, not only naval special warfare. That's right. The, the Honor Foundation was formed... Uh, from the SEAL community, but we serve the entire special operations community, and that means Green Berets, Rangers, special operations pilots, combat controllers from the Air Force, um, special boat operators from the Navy, and Marine Raiders as well. It's great, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, Matt, just a couple more words about you. Uh, let's start way back. Why did you decide to become a SEAL? Uh, and actually say a little bit more about what it means to be a SEAL, and uh, maybe just a highlight or two of your career, 26 years serving the United States. Absolutely. I chose to be a SEAL mainly because I had no idea what I wanted to do coming out of high school. And uh, from my sophomore year, I was at an awards ceremony and saw one of my friends who was a couple years older get recognized Mm. for getting an appointment to the Air Force Academy. And that was, at the time, an equivalent of a $250,000 scholarship. Hmm. And that kind of sparked my interest in serving in the military. And so I started to research that, uh, what it meant to serve. And I knew I did. I, I wanted to do something greater, you know, serve a cause greater than myself uh, and for a good purpose. And so I hmm. really started looking into the Naval Academy. And around 1987, there was an article in Parade Magazine. The remote used to come in the yeah. Sunday paper. Uh, little, <laughs> Absolutely. <yes. laughs> Around the and country, it, no less. That's right. And it was called The Toughest Men Alive. And it was the first time I'd even heard of Navy SEALs. And it detailed mm. some of the training, uh, what they did on missions. And I, I just immediately felt drawn to that community and impressed uh, on from there to do everything I could to get into the SEAL teams. So I was fortunate to get into the Naval Academy, and then I was uh, worked super hard while there and was lucky enough to get a, a billet to try to become a SEAL at uh, the Basic Underwater Demolition School in Coronado, and uh, the rest is history. I, I Again, I was super lucky to make it through the training, and uh, I've served uh, since then. You know, I, I, was, I finished training in 1992, and uh, transitioned out of the Navy in 2017 um, for this role. Yeah, Matt, one more quick question for me, and then I'm going to bring Ann in. Uh, I think the list, most listeners will have known of the way the Navy SEALs number their teams, so SEAL Team 1, 2, and so on. If you could say a word about what that means to be, say, as you were, and <laughs> you were with, I think, uh, SEAL Team 2 at one point, uh, let's see if I got that right. And then, secondly, you alluded to it, but BUDS training. What, what's entailed in that? Sure. So I'll, I'll start with your first question. The, uh, the Navy, as a large organization and uh, Naval Special Warfare, number their fleets and their groups according to where they are on the, uh, in the, on the Earth. And so all of the odd number of SEAL teams, SEAL Team 1, 3, 5, 7 are on the West Coast in Coronado. Mm-hmm. And all of the East Coast SEAL teams are SEAL Team 2, 4, 8, and 10. And, and that's the only difference is uh, based yep. on geographic location. 
And just, uh, Matt, one more just kind of on-the-ground factual question here. How many people are typically on one of the teams, one of these groups? Uh, a SEAL team is around 200 people. It uh, has about six to eight platoons in it, and a platoon is the operational arm of a SEAL team, and, it's, and that's 16-person mm-hmm. uh, element. Great. And then on BUDS training? Yeah, BUDS training is the... Is the uh, is the basic training to get into the SEAL community. It's a six-month-long, very arduous training uh, curriculum out in Coronado, California. It's always sunny and 72 in Coronado, but the water is always, always cold. uh, (laughs) You spend a lot of time wet and sandy. Um, About uh, 75% of the folks that start SEAL training typically wash out and don't make it through the program. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great place to be from. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you said it all, Matt. So, Anne, jump in. Uh, well, Matt, uh, thank you for being here and for your service. It's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. As, huh. you know, as someone who knows a little bit about the SEALs through my work with Mike here in the leadership huh. program, I can't resist asking a bit about what, What's required initially to become a SEAL? And I understand 75% washout of the training. So first question, and then follow-up, what does it require to have the kind of endurance as a SEAL that you have had? In other words, what got you there? Does it keep you there? Sure. it's pretty. Uh, the standards are pretty basic to become a SEAL. You have to be a high school graduate, and then you have to pass a, a physical fitness test. Um, but with the popularity of the SEAL community and all special operations, really, um, they, you know, if there's 100 slots for a, a particular class, they'll take the top 100 guys. So the minimum, minimum standards typically won't get you in the door. And, um, and so, and then of course, you have to be medically qualified as well. Um, what, what gets you there is, is being super fit, being uh, relatively smart, and uh, having an absolute dedication to wanting to, to complete the training. What keeps you there is a, is an attitude of perseverance, and I'd say that's the most important thing. And we've had super fit triathletes, uh, great athletes who you think are going to be the guys who make it through the training. Right. Um, but it's the guys who are quiet professionals who just have the never-quit attitude and will do whatever it takes to finish the training. And it's a, it's really mind over matter. Wow. Yeah, I appreciate your answer to that. Mm-hmm. We've had Angela Duckworth on the program. And as you know, she writes about grit and talks about the combination of uh, passion and perseverance. So what you're saying about just plain quiet professional who hangs in there, never quit, that really resonates with some of what she talks about. So as what it requires a you know this grit to get in, the kinds of uh, the ways in which you're deployed over a long career are the are those ways similar or there great variety? Can you speak to that? I can. Uh, typically, once you get into a SEAL team, after you, know, you go through SEAL training and then you actually have more advanced training, it takes about 
18 months to two years to get into a SEAL team. Once you're there, then the typical rotation is uh, about 18 months of training, schools, and workup, and then a six-month deployment overseas to wherever you're tasked to go. And that's a constant rotation where you come back and then you, you start that cycle again. Often, if there's manning shortfalls, people get accelerated and spend more time overseas. And then there's other groups where it is slightly different, and you might deploy for shorter periods of time, but on a more frequent basis. And then, of course, everybody's always on standby if there's a, a national emergency and, and your services are required um, somewhere else on the planet. Mm, okay. And now uh, you're, you had a specialty, am I right, in your education? Well, I, I had an ocean engineering degree. Yes. Naval Academy. Right. I've used it absolutely uh, zero times. Oh, that was my question. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome to the liberal arts tradition. Exactly. I was a physics major, and what was your Literature major? Literature major. There, there we go. But we use it in surprising ways, well, not immediately it, obvious to it's others. it's in the back of our head, so exactly. I'm sure that's true for you, too. Matt. Yeah. And in fact, may, maybe I will ask and then pass the baton back to Mike. Are there ways in which your education has served you, maybe in surprising ways, not the expected ways, but in surprising ways? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, you know, from the technical side of things, uh, as an ocean engineer, I actually learned quite a bit about, uh, you know, the forces of water and, uh, and nature on structures in the ocean. Mm -hmm. there's, a lot, there's a bit of civil engineering in, in it as well, so that certainly helped on the, uh, my time on the shore and, uh, and the coastline. Uh, and then, honestly, it's the, the overall body of work where, uh, for four years at the Naval Academy, you're not just doing the academic stuff, but you're doing the professional military stuff. Everybody has to be an athlete. Uh, there's conduct standards required. And, and that whole body of work, mm. stressors over time, um, can prepare you for almost anything. And that certainly helps for the uh, longevity of the constant deployment cycle. Oh, very good. Well, thank you, Matt. Mike. <laughs> yeah, Matt, I'm going to just uh, take a pause here and remind everybody that they are listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and we are talking with Matt Stevens, retired Navy SEAL and now chief executive of a group called the Honor Foundation. You want to join in? Uh, you veterans out there, uh, be sure to give this a thought. Give us a call at 844 942-7866. Matt, I want to ask you about uh, some, in a sense, uh, references you make in, in the description on air and then before air of what it takes to be a Navy SEAL. And first of all, it's yourself. Second of all, it's the team or group you serve with. But then we also picked up a phrase from a person you know, Stanley McChrystal, who had been responsible for special operations at one point, mm -hmm. responsible for everything in Afghanistan as a commanding general as well. And he's written a book you're probably familiar with called Team of Teams. Mm -hmm. So if you could say a little bit about uh, how you create, how you were part of, and then you helped create high-performance teams – the, the special warfare groups within uh, the world you serve. And then, since you were also directly involved in putting teams together uh, to um, <laughs> apply the kind of 
uh, purpose that they do in in joint command. Mm-hmm. Let's start with uh, the team itself. What does it take to create a high-performance team? You've saw it up close. And then secondly, what does it take to put teams together so you have a team of teams? Well, that's a great question. And uh, I worked for General McChrystal several times and uh, phenomenal books, everything that he's written and everything that he continues to do. Uh, I'd absolutely recommend reading it, getting to know him, and uh, and following him. I would follow him anywhere, and uh, okay. he, he, he lived what he wrote about. Yeah. Yeah, everything. that's the statement, Matt. Thank you on that. Yes. Yeah, so for me, how to, how to create a high-performing team, um, you know, there, there's numerous, numerous pieces to this, but uh, the number one thing I would say is you have to have a a common purpose, a shared purpose that everybody believes in. That's first and foremost. Um, For me, uh, as we did it, I always felt that I had to be authentic and uh, and tell everybody on the team why we were doing something. Even if they didn't agree it, I would uh, give everybody a chance to voice their opinion and then and then make a decision, but give them the why so that they could at least understand the decision-making process. Trust is a key piece of it, um, and clear commander's intent, or clear intent that's uh, that's pretty simple. So you, you understand as a leader that you have to set the strategic direction of, uh, of the team, but then you have to trust everybody on the team to do their part, and you can't micromanage um, and so part of that also is finding the right people to be on the team. And if you have the flexibility to actually choose your own team, you gotta, you got to find the, the people who believe what you believe aren't necessarily yes-men will give you their honest opinion, um, but allow them to do their work. And so building the team, and if there's somebody uh, that's not going to ever fit into that model, then uh, asking them to lead the team. So... Uh, those are the key elements for me. And then as a leader, uh, the final thing is always leading by example. So you have to be able to, mm. to walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk. And we've, we've probably all seen it where people say one thing and do another. And that's uh, that's a recipe for disaster on a high-performing team. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate your description, Matt. And uh, when Stanley McChrystal also on the show spoke about team of teams, he had an expression I really appreciated, maybe familiar in the military, but he talked about keeping eyes on but hands off. And I think that really resonates with what you're saying about uh, being attentive as the leader of the team but not micromanaging. Could you say a little bit more about uh, authenticity? Uh, Because what I think I understand you saying is that when you, you're giving the the team members the reason why, and then you added, now they may not agree. So say a little bit more about authenticity. Well, I think uh, you have to embody what, what, you're, what you're saying. And uh, as a leader, you, you, have to, you have to always do that. And part of, part of gaining the trust and confidence of the team is maybe – uh, showing a little, little bit of vulnerability as a leader, right? So you can't always sit on a high horse and never get personal. And if you are able and willing to show some vulnerability, admit that you're not perfect, ask for input, know that you're going to make mistakes, then I think you really build the trust and confidence of everybody else on the team because they know it's a, they, they understand that you're not a zero defect kind of person 
and that uh, and you're gonna you're gonna always have their best interests in mind. Certainly, the mission or whatever the uh, whatever the mission is, whether it's business, military, whatnot, needs to come first. But uh, as long as you're authentic and they know you have their backs as well, 100% of the time, even if you don't agree with them, then uh, then you typically get the trust. Um, and General McChrist always used to say, "Trust equals uh, freedom of action." Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if you gain the trust, you know, both oh. up and down an, an order, organization then you can you can just operate in that environment understanding the strategic intent and not have to micromanage so does that answer your question it does that's wonderful and uh have you had the uh, experience of having to ask someone to step aside and step off of the team unfortunately i have and that's uh it's probably the hardest leadership challenge or management challenge that uh, that i deal with or ever have dealt with is is uh, asking somebody or telling somebody that uh, that they have to they have to step off the team, and uh, particularly in the special operations community, where where people have volunteered numerous times, gone through rigorous selection, mm, yeah. assessment, and training programs, and then earned the right to be somewhere, and then maybe somewhere down the road things just aren't working out. That is a really hard a really hard yeah. thing to do because people's lives are you know their yes. careers are at stake and. And uh, and it's pretty tough, but at the end of the day, the the mission of the organization, a top priority, and you have to do what's best for for that. From from your experience, is there a usual cause for that? No. Uh, it, if we're talking specifically in the special operations community, it's uh, it's it can be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be performance related, where they just an operator just isn't performing up to the standards of the particular unit. It can be conduct related where they've done something that's uh, against the uniform, uniform code of military justice right. or, or a trust thing. Like we talked about with anything, if you can't trust somebody uh, as a team member, particularly when it's a life or death situation, yeah. then, uh, then, then you can't have them on the team. And one more for me, and then back to Mike. Is uh, any tips for, you know, listeners? We we all have been not in special operations, but we've had situations in which we have asked someone to step off of a team. So, from your experience, any suggestions on how to go about that in the best way? Well, it's never easy, and uh, and, and I think everybody has their own style. Um, I always try to keep it professional, and. Uh, and just kind of explain to the individual that in the in the larger scheme of life, this particular incident is probably just a blip on the radar screen. Yeah. And that they are going to overcome it. They're going to succeed in their next endeavor. And then I'm there for them if they ever need uh, support, whether it's letters of recommendation or uh, serving as a reference, things like that. So making it, trying to make it as positive as possible. Yeah. Um, and supportive. That's great. That's Thank really, you. It's really interesting, and I'll put my word on it, and then throw it back at you. You do want people to exit. They have served. They've uh, committed a big piece of their life to this. You want them to exit with their own dignity. And um, assuming that that sums up some of what you said, there's more to it than that. Uh, how do you actually achieve that in conversation? Give a, 
people a, a sense that this is not a great fit, but they're still a, a fit person and so on. So the maintenance of dignity, how did you go about that? Well, I always tried to explain to them that, uh, that I appreciate their service, thank them for everything they've done, um, get to the point that it's not going to work out and that uh, they need to leave, not dwell on it. Uh, if, if you're able to uh, give a reason why, because I think that helps. And certainly it's different in the private sector if there's lawyers and things like that involved. And then um, simply tell them that, you know, whatever you can do, whatever I could do to help them in the future, I would. And, and I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that, you know, in every situation I've been in, it was a pleasant conversation because often it's, it's not. But um, I always maintain my, my professionalism mm -hmm. and, uh, and my respect for them and just try to, you know, carry that out in my actions later. Uh, trying to set them up for success. Um, it's a difficult yeah. conversation to have. Uh, Matt, uh, we're going to have to take a, a break. This is just a heads up in about two minutes, but I've got a similar kind of question going a little bit back, and that is, again, kind of in the vein of what Ann said, if you can give us some guidance for listeners now on how they can, on the front end, help create a sense of purpose. So you've nicely described, very nicely described how you can help somebody exit, but in somebody coming in and then it's probably a reinforced point often, how do you create purpose without, uh, my words here, without seeming kind of corny in the way you go about that? So how do you do that? Well, that's a great question. Um, the first thing is uh, always, uh, what I always try to do is, is make sure everybody understands the mission, uh, and then not tell them how we're going to do the mission, uh, but try to get their input on the how. So if you if you have the opportunity and the time uh, to get team member input to how you're going to solve a problem, then you can get bigger buy-in for the shared purpose, I think. Um, and then, you know, just making sure everybody's voice is heard, uh, talking through it as a professional. Typically, in my experience, has been uh, a catalyst for, for getting that buy-in, um, you know, just being having authentic conversations about uh, what it is you're trying to accomplish. So I think, in a, and that's really important when you're bringing new team members on because you have to identify whether or not they're going to identify with that purpose. Um, but once you... You kind of get it, and they get it, um, and they're the right fit. Then I think it's uh, it's much easier because if they're never going to buy into the purpose of what you're doing, then, then it's probably yep. not a good fit, yep. even if they're super talented. And our guest for the last hour, last half hour, but what, uh, half an hour yet to go, is Matt Stevens, a retired Navy SEAL and now chief executive of a group called the Honor Foundation. We want to take the second half of our program now, Matt, to talk with you about the. Honor Foundation, uh, what it is, how it serves, uh, how it operates, and beyond. So I'm going to turn the baton over here to Anne, who's going to get us going on that. Yeah, really. i just uh, curious to know even the size of the organization, how it's organized. I know you're CEO, but can you speak to that? Absolutely. Uh, the Honor Foundation is a 15-person national nonprofit 
that serves the entire special operations community. We have physical campuses in San Diego, California, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. We also have a virtual campus uh, that anybody from around the world can attend. Um, and the way we do it is uh, we have a three-month uh, program that's modeled after an executive MBA. Oh, cool. So the, the folks who come to it do it twice a week at night. Uh, we actually think the most advantageous time for folks to come through is about 12 to 18 months before they actually transition out of the military. And throughout the three months, it's 120 hours of executive education, professional development, practical application, one-on-one coaching, and lifelong mentorship. Um, we basically break it down into three phases. The first phase is all about you as an individual. And really what we do is we dive into the introspective aspect of what makes a person tick and, uh, and trying to find a purpose for them and digging into the why. Uh, why they exist on the planet. And we think that's the most important thing because it's very clear when you're in the military what your what your mission is. And if you come to work every day and uh, no matter what you're doing, at the at the end of that there's a there's a clear purpose. As as you transition to the private sector from that life, it's often very difficult to figure out what what is important. So that's what we start with. We dive deep into that and uh and that really is, is helpful. Then the next phase is all about the tools that uh, that one might think is typically involved in a program like this, you know, how, to, how to build a resume, how to get on LinkedIn, compensation negotiation, and how to network uh, with people that aren't exactly like you, how to communicate, storytelling. And then the final phase is, is more practical application. Uh, we dig into entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship within a corporate culture, how to do corporate research, uh, some more networking, and then also like a, an MBA program, we take our fellows on a trek to a metro area uh, for about three and a half days we'll, where we visit uh, 10 to 12 companies just to give them an idea of different corporate cultures, industries, uh, open their eyes to where they might get into an industry they never even thought about. And, of course, we sprinkle in networking along the way to uh, to make sure they, they, can, they can talk to <laughs> – uh, regular civilians, yeah. not just telling uh, war stories all the time. So that that encompasses uh, three months, and then we have a nice graduation ceremony for them. And then, you know, our mission is to serve others with honor for life. So their next mission is clear, and they continue to, to impact the world. So we stay tightly networked with our, our graduates and help them out uh, when they actually are at the transition point. <coughs> Excuse me. Wow. Um, to, Today we've got we, we've had 544 people come through the program. We'll be at 600 by the end of the year, and uh, and it's a great honor for me to be uh, part of this organization. Mm, that's wonderful, Matt. And there are so many great elements. You know, I'm that starting with their sense of self, that introspection, then giving people some of the learning, the tools, as you said. And some, you know, practical application as well. I heard coaching as well along the way. Is that right? That's right. We pair every single person coming through our program with a uh, coach, uh, either an executive coach or just somebody who is uh, a supporter of the program with uh, some great experiences. They can walk Mm -hmm. this journey with them to help them uh, figure things out. 
Now, I'm just curious, did your um, interest in serving the organization come from your own experience in making the transition? Because after 26 years as a SEAL, moving out of that world, I would imagine, would be very difficult. It absolutely did. And uh, and I actually intersected with the Honor Foundation kind of by accident. I was uh, serving as a Commodore on one of the at one of the East Coast, Coast groups uh, within Naval Special Warfare, and I was asked to speak at an Honor Foundation event where it was kind of the East Coast uh, mm. opening ceremony. And I didn't know anything about it, so I asked the founder to come talk to me about it, and he, and he did, and it sounded amazing because – you know, I, I knew there was a need for something like this. Yeah, I spoke at the event. Then uh, shortly thereafter, decided I was going to transition out myself, and uh, so I decided to attend the first East Coast class back in 2016 in Virginia Beach. Uh, oh, great! And I was a fairly senior guy in the in the community, so I, my mindset at the time was honestly just that I was going to audit the course and maybe, you know, get a thing or two out of it. And I was blown away by the. Mm incredible content it really helped me for the first time in almost 30 years think about myself and my family and what i wanted to do next right and uh and so once i went through the program i you know wanted to stay involved get give back and and so i you know i was lucky enough to be on the board of directors for uh, a couple of years and then uh was actually in, in the private sector working till this past january uh when the opportunity to uh step in came up and so I'm honored to to be here. Oh, very good. So initially, how would you describe your initial sense of purpose as you stepped out of, you know, special operations in the SEAL community? Well, it's a tough thing to to figure out. Uh, I had no idea uh, what that was going to be, frankly. And the Honor Foundation allowed me to, to dig deep into my own uh, psyche and, and figure that out. And so what I what I determine is that I like to help people yeah. uh, realize their full potential. And so, you know, still maintaining some level of service to others was important yeah. to me in my next adventure. Mm, very good. Wonderful, Mike. Matt, I'm going to pick up on a couple of themes here and make the kind of obvious observation to get us going that people change jobs all the time. They even change careers, not infrequently. But there's a, a, sub, uh, a subcategory of people, yourself included, who had to fundamentally change what you did and how you did it and where you were going. Mm-hmm. So people coming out of 20 years, years in your case, 26 years of service to the country, uh, football players stepping down after five years in the National Football League. Yeah. <laughs> Dancers in what is sometimes called the core in uh, professional ballet at a certain age. They have to leave ballet. They're no longer able to do what's required for that kind of performance. And some will stay in the uh, sort of in the area. They might become a dance teacher, but many. NFL players included, and certainly many SEALs, really go into something totally different, whether it's business or nonprofit service. Question for you, as you've worked with many people now at the Honor Foundation, what are the one or two biggest challenges that people face uh, in their maybe their 20s, their 30s, or even their 40s in making this fundamental redirection of what they're going to be doing 
in their life. So what, what do you see, and then how do you address those most important challenges that they face? That's a great question, and that's the, uh, the crux of, of our program, trying to get to the, uh, the root of that. The, uh, the, one of the biggest challenges we see is, is uh, the struggle for folks coming from a high-performing team, all of the things that you just mentioned, uh, and trying to find a similar culture um, or, you know, that tribal culture, whether it's a you know, football locker room, a, a Navy SEAL team room, uh, you know, everybody has that kind of, you know, behind the scenes family where you can be yourself and you're 100% ingrained in doing whatever it takes to win. And uh, and so the, the hardest thing that we found is people trying to find that, replicate that uh, somewhere else. And so, what we do is we, you know, I don't think you're ever going to be able to replicate it exactly, <laughs> um, but you can certainly dig into the culture of an organization that you may be interested in and uh, find the right fit. So a lot of what we do is have the guys and ladies who are transitioning uh, change their mindset to it's not about me interviewing and somebody like mm. me. I am also interviewing this place where I may go work. And if you simply, you know, if you, or you, you go to the entrepreneurial side and you start your own business if you never want to work for somebody again. So that's yeah. probably the most difficult thing. The second thing I would say is we deal a lot with prioritization. So uh, as you know, you don't make a ton of money while you're in the military. Nobody's doing it for the money. So there's oftentimes a sense of, hey, I'm. I'm approaching the end of my prime earning years, and I need to go make a lot of money. Um, and that's fine if that's what they want to do, but we just we put it into a different uh, conversation where, hey, there's other things that affect your life from here on out, and you can choose it. So if it's money, you know, pick money. But if it's lifestyle, mm-hmm. if it's family, if it's location, if it's quality of life, those things all weigh into it. And so we we go through some exercises on what's most important to the individual and then help them uh, find the right match. Yeah. Uh, Matt, I've got to follow up on that, but just uh, for a a quick 30 seconds here, I'm going to remind our listeners that I'm Mike Uceum. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And we are, of course, in discussion with Matt Stevens, CEO of the Honor Foundation. Uh, and I said this before, if you happen to be a, a veteran or would have somebody in your family who has served, why don't you give us a call and throw a question at Matt, 844-942-7866. And Matt, here's the, the quick follow-up discussion uh, question. Uh, as you help people work through this enormous transition. Uh, give us a feel for the, the, I don't know, the time involved. Is this something that, from your experience, is a couple weeks, several months, uh, a year or more? And I say that because it really references your foundation, how, how much time you have to devote to working with people who are deaccessing, coming out of the... SEAL community or otherwise. So anyway, how many, how much time does it take to help people really get through that transition? Oh, that's another great question. Um, what, what we found is 
transition doesn't happen in a, in a weekend seminar. Um, <laughs> and that's why we yeah. modeled our program uh, for three months. And, and, you know, it ebbs and flows. It's been as long as four months. We found that three months is about the sweet spot for what we offer. Um, you know, 120 hours of content, we could probably jam that into a couple weekends where you just run through the content. But what we like to do is we purposely space it out so that each individual has time to think and to marinate on the what we're talking about. We also offer a, a pretty safe space for folks who've been through some pretty intense combat operations to go through it with like-minded individuals so they can uh, they can share and talk, uh, which is often more important than any content. It's, it's going through a transition with a good support network. Uh, and then, like uh, I mentioned it when I was talking about the program, we actually think the most advantageous time to go through something like this is about 12 to 18 months, maybe even a little longer before you are going to transition. Mm-hmm so that you can go through the process and think about yourself and your family and, and what your priorities are and uh, probably have a couple missteps, all starts, and then uh, recock and be able to uh, then go on the right path. So it's honestly, it's a you know, transition from the military. It doesn't happen effectively, in my opinion, uh, quickly. It's probably a year or even two, or until you're really transitioned and ingrained in your next adventure in life. Matt, you mentioned at the at the top of the hour that um, this is a special program for uh, special operations military. And can you say what are the unique needs that these veterans have that you know requires the kind of programming that you're offering? Well, the unique needs of this particular segment of the military population is, is what we were talking about uh, with the high, coming from a high-performing team. Right. Um, so you're, you're ingrained in a culture where mission accomplishment is everything, and you're going to do that no matter what it takes, and you're going to train and train and train, and you're going to be around like-minded individuals. So the, uh, the special requirement here particularly for those who have seen um, significant combat, is tailoring uh, the skills and helping them translate them into civilian speak, for lack of a better term. Uh, That's one thing. And then the other thing with the special operations community is uh, 99% of the people in the community don't like to talk about themselves. Being a silent professional Mm -hmm. is Mm. one of the mantras. And so there's a very hard piece to break this segment into being comfortable talking about yourself, advocating for yourself in a respectful Mm. manner that doesn't go against any of your your beliefs. So most are social media, complete blank, no no Facebook, LinkedIn, anything else, Twitter. Instagram, and then uh, we expose them to how they can do that in a uh, in a professional manner, where it's not chest beating, um, but still advocating for yourself. And so that's a piece of it. And then you know, talking about yourself, storytelling is a big piece of of our program. How to how to really relay some of your skills that may not be you know industry specific, but they are 
lifelong skills that yeah. transcend any industry. Mm. We, we, we dig into that quite a bit. All right, maybe one more for me. I really appreciate the notion of civilian speak. So what might be some of the uh, suggestions, guidelines that you would give to military personnel as they make the transition into the civilian world? What is it about the change in language? Well, coming from the military background, uh, we're often accused of using acronyms, uh, things that other people don't understand that's uh, ad nauseum, and that's true. Uh, it's not bad. It's just different. So right. you, have to, you have to go the other way and learn um, what business language is. And so what I would recommend is, number one, do a lot of reading. Number two, uh, network and meet new people that are from different backgrounds, um, have cups of coffee, with people from different business sectors there's i've not met anybody who's unwilling to help a transitioning military service member and at least have a cup of coffee and so over time by doing that repetitively you 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 start to understand the language and then um, what we do in particular is we we dive into corporate culture we do a, a business 101 class so so they can understand at least some of the terminology and then dig into it on their own for for self-discovery. Uh, self oh, that's great. Very good. Thank you. Mike? Matt, I want to recognize uh, again the fact that uh, Monday is Veterans Day. A little history on this, then Matt, a question to you. I think uh, most people will remember that it, it originated in what was called Armistice Day, which was the end of hostilities, November 11th, 1919, of, of World War One. And, uh, in fact, we know the hour, 11 a.m. on that date 101 years ago. Anyway, Matt, uh, Monday is it, Veterans Day now. And just a, a thought, a final thought from you to those who served and also those who have not served on how they uh, should acknowledge and recognize on Monday that it's Veterans Day. Well, Veterans Day uh, for many is a deeply personal day based on their families and and their own service. Um, It's a time for introspection, in my opinion, to think about what you've done and what you can continue to do. Um, What I would say to those who have not served, you know, it's certainly nice to hear somebody say thank you for your service, but often that rings a little bit hollow, and I I would just ask that instead of doing that or just that, that you do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, serve, serve yourself. Uh, a cause greater than yourself. Uh, donate time, talent, or uh, or even your own treasure to one of these causes, and uh, and do something about it. Be a great citizen, and make it worth the service and sacrifice that every veteran has gone through. Great. So, Matt, I've got uh, just one final question to clean up an issue we talked about ever so briefly along the way. For people coming out of service in uh, naval special warfare who are going to go, let's say, into business and uh, they have to manage themselves, they got to manage the teams, could be a product team or a marketing team in business, but they also, as they rise in responsibility, they have to put teams of teams together. So a little bit backward-looking but also forward-looking, as you 
manage now all the teams that uh, define what happens at the Honor Foundation. What are a couple of things you might have from your past that help you inform your own leadership now with the Honor Foundation as a team of teams? I'm going to go back to the common purpose and uh, and trying to define that and instill that as a leader, trying to be inspirational and living it every day. Um, And so with that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the CEO or if you're sweeping the floors, it's all important. And, uh, you know, just a quick story. During, at the beginning, right after 9-11, uh, all the operators, like the actual badge SEALs, I, I think we all felt that we were the most important people uh, in the fight. And what we quickly realized is that we were the least important people, and it was the backside support, the intelligence analysts who were going to mm. get us to a target. They were the most important people to the team. And so we used to mm. say, don't don't confuse your proximity to the target with your importance to the mission. And I think that can apply to building a team in, in, as you try to instill a sense of purpose. Everybody on the team is uh, is completely relevant and important the other piece i'd say is personal relationships uh mean more than anything and so if i am going to ask somebody to do something really hard and it's a cold call they're less likely to do it uh as opposed to if i know them personally and i'm taking time to get to know them their families uh what makes them tick uh that is critically important so relationships and uh instilling that sense of purpose i, I think are super important. There's there's a hundred other things that I could talk about, but uh, you know, in my opinion, those are, are really important. Matt, that's great. With yeah. just a couple seconds to go, um, first of all, thank you for joining us and for mm-hmm. listeners that would like to learn more about the Honor Foundation, what direction would you give them? I would just tell them to go onto the, uh, the website at honor.org H-O-N-O-R dot O-R-G They can email me directly at Matt at honor.org, and uh, we'd love to have uh, anybody uh, donate time, uh, talent, treasure, and uh, love to have anybody out there hire some of our transitioning special operators. Matt Stevens, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much for the opportunity. All right, uh, Anne, uh, 60 seconds after action review. Pick out something we ought to remember. Well, I really appreciate one of Matt's uh, closing words about be careful about confusing your proximity to the target with your importance to (laughs) the mission. So important. No matter where you are in the organization, uh, you have a part to play. Yeah, I think uh, that caught my attention, too. It's a a great way to sum up the fact that we have to be humble about what we're doing and remember that it's a team of teams to get just about (laughs) anything done. Right. And I think uh, we began also on a note that we've often referenced in this program, and that is grit, perseverance, getting things done. Yeah. uh, Is really the foundation of leadership in action. Right. And our lives. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely. So... All right, everybody, I want to thank you for joining us. If you got a question about uh, what you heard today on the show or beyond that, we are available at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Also, we've got a new Twitter handle, so mark this down mentally, if not on the paper, right there in front of you, uh, at SXM Business. That's SXM Business. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 